Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So those of you listening in real time, you may have noticed that this episode is a week late. I won't bore you with the details, but it mostly involved me sitting down to record, finding that my script had disappeared, both off the file and the backup, and then me spending a good long while having an old-fashioned rage. If I'd been Henry VIII, then I reckon a good few ministers would be facing the chop. Anyway, I've had to pretty much rewrite this whole episode from scratch, so it had better be good. This is the final instalment of the Catherine Power miniseries, and indeed of the whole of the main part of Season 2 of the Queens of England podcast. If you remember, season one was the medieval queens, season two, the wives of Henry VIII, and then season three will take care of the Stuarts. Never fear though, you Tudor fans, because I have a whole series of supplementals coming up that will bridge the gap between Catherine Parr, the last queen consort of the Tudors, and Anne of Denmark, the first of the Stuart queens. Not to mention the chat episode coming next week. If you're sat there yelling about why I'm not covering Jane Grey, Mary Tudor, and Elizabeth Tudor in full... Well, then you haven't been paying much attention then, have you? Now, I'm recording this episode a little in advance because, possibly while you're listening to this right now, I'm doing my big cycling sportive, the Ride London Surrey 46. I very stupidly gave you the wrong URL last time for my fundraising page. Turns out, after over two years of podcasting, I can still make really, really dumb mistakes. For the record, the page is justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash James Bolton, 17. Remember that pesky number 17. That's again, justliving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash James Bolton, 17. Thanks so much to the amazing people who have donated so far. Linda Hostelter, Jenny Y, Michelle Dana, Tracy Henley and Alexander French. The British Red Cross's UK Solidarity Fund is a cause I'm really passionate about and every penny that you send counts. I've just the three new patrons since the last show, Matt B, Elizabeth C, and Sally B, who, ladies and gentlemen, is my own mother. Good to be recognised by one's own family, I guess. I raise my glass to all of you, and indeed to all my wonderful donators. Don't forget to sign up to the Facebook and Twitter pages. If I have any news about the show, you'll hear about it there first. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 56, Catherine Parr, the Lady of Sudley. Although Catherine Parr had survived the conservative plot against her in 1546, 
she had been thoroughly chastened. If she hadn't already been fully aware of just how dangerous and precarious life at the top of the English political food chain was, then she certainly was now. Yet equally, her position was still pretty strong. Yes, Henry had given her a warning, but he had backed her and pretty well slapped down the conservative reactionary factions at court. Those supportive of her position were now fully in the ascendancy, and there was not any real threat to her position, as though long as she didn't make any outrageous blunders. In other words, do a Catherine Howard. Another sign that Catherine had been forgiven is the fact that Henry showered her with all sorts of expensive gifts of jewellery from the continent and gave her custody of the thing that he held most dear in this entire world, his son Edward, through the summer and winter of 1546-47. Things were pretty quiet at court for a while, while Henry recovered from his illness, but with the summer came a big showpiece event. The war with France that I spoke of two episodes back had reached stalemate. England still held on to Boulogne, but seemed unlikely to make further progress, while France showed no willingness to make any attempt to take it, as France's couldn't raise enough money to support a large enough army. Both sides were then finally ready to talk Turkey, and a peace deal was thrashed out. The Admiral of England was dispatched to France to sign the treaty, and then his French counterpart, Admiral Danibaud, came over to England. As with all things with Henry and Francis, this was all about who had the largest you-know-what. The English admiral had been greeted with great fanfare, so of course, Henry had to better it. Everyone at court was expected to wear their most lavish outfits, their most expensive jewellery, and put on a show. As queen and hostess, Catherine was expected to play a big role in this, but possibly her most important duty related to the Prince of Wales. This was to be Edward's first big public engagement, and Catherine's job was to make sure that he was ready for it. Catherine had already proven early in her reign that she was an excellent hostess and was trusted by the king to make sure that her stepchildren were ready for this occasion. If there was anything that Catherine Parr could do, it was be an excellent stepmother. We can see how much Edward valued her counsel in this letter that he wrote to her in Latin in advance of the visit. Quote, I have very great thanks for you, most noble queen and most illustrious mother, because you treated me so kindly when I was with you at Westminster. Such benign treatment suffuses the coldness in me, so that I love you more, although I cannot love you better. So it seems to me an age since I have seen you. I also wish to entreat your highness to overlook that I have not written a letter to you for this long time. Indeed I wanted to, but daily I expected that I would be with your highness." When Fowler first went, however, there was scarcely time for me to write unto your royal majesty. I further pray your highness to indicate to me whether the admiral who is coming from France knows Latin, because if he does, I want to learn more what I should say to him when I come to meet with him. Isn't that sweet? When it came, the visit was a huge success. The admiral was greeted at Greenwich by a great gun salute from the English navy, after which she was led through the city, which had been dressed for the occasion, with the streets thronged with crowds. He was then greeted near Hampton Court by the Prince of Wales, where, no doubt armed with the advice that his stepmother had given him, he entertained the Admiral while he brought him to the palace, where Henry and Catherine were waiting. When he got there, there was, quote, "...banqueting and hunting, and a rich mask every night with the Queen and ladies." Chief among the English nobles at this celebration was Catherine's brother, the Earl of Essex, but Catherine herself played a fairly minor role. 
hosting the events, but being kept well out of the political stuff. That said, the political stuff was fairly ornamental too. The deal was done. This was all about showmanship. After Danibo returned to France, things settled down a little bit, and the royal couple set off on a progress. But while on it, the king fell very ill again, and by the late autumn of 1546, it seemed very likely that he was on his last legs. Even while approaching his end, Henry was still a very dangerous man, and his behaviour became extremely erratic and vicious, as it always seemed to do when he was ill. Catherine knew that her best chance of staying in the king's good graces was to remain close to him and help ease his pains as best she could. However, and we're not entirely sure why or how, she seems to have fallen foul of the king's temper and was sent away from him in December 1546. Rumours swelled after this. Some said that he once again wished to do away with his wife, to replace her with Anne of Cleves or maybe her friend the Duchess of Suffolk. Both Elizabeth and Edward were taken from her household at this time, which was not a good sign. Her best chance in the post-Henry future was to keep the possession and loyalty of the new boy king and his half-sister Elizabeth. That is where the power would be. She was not their biological mother, but they both looked up to her as if she was. The position of Queen Mother was potentially a very strong one if played correctly, and it was her best chance of surviving her husband's death with her position, wealth and influence not just intact, but possibly upgraded. With the king on his way out, this was the time to start making careful moves, but it seems that she may have gone too far and lost out. She was not the only one to fall foul. Indeed, she got off pretty easy. The Duke of Norfolk, remember him, and his son were both accused of treason. They offered a potential threat to the incoming regime, and there was nothing that Henry wouldn't do to ensure a peaceful transition of power between himself and Prince Edward. Norfolk would escape the headsman's axe, but only because he managed to outlive the king, his sentence falling just after Henry's death. His son was not so lucky. He was executed. The wily snake Norfolk would survive to fight the good fight another day. The big question on everyone's minds, though, the trillion quid question, was what was in Henry's will? Who would lead the Council of Guardians that would guide Edward during his minority? Who would be in physical possession of the boy? Henry's will had been amended many times over the years. The contents of the 1544 version of the will, written when Henry went to war on the continent, is not known to us, but it seems likely that it would have provided for a significant role in the minority government to Catherine. She had been appointed as regent of the kingdom after all, and was seen as a natural fit. Her time as regent of the kingdom while Henry was away was treated by her as an audition, a chance to prove herself as someone who could keep England, and most importantly Edward, safe. However, things had changed. Catherine was no longer the dominant figure that she had once been, and a new man had risen to the top of the political food chain. Edward Seymour, the Earl of Hertford. We've met Seymour before, the brother of Henry's third wife, Jane, and Catherine Pyle's former bae, Thomas. He'd stayed in the king's favour through all of this, and accumulated quite a great deal of power and influence. He was the uncle of the Prince of Wales, he had money and influence, and, let's not forget, he was a man. He was also very ambitious and a master politician. It is likely that the attacks on Norfolk and his son had been at his urging, and he was in no mood to let all this work lead to a regency led by the Queen. No, he wanted power for himself. Now the question of what happened with Henry's last will is a matter of some debate. 
But here are some facts. Catherine never saw the king between December 1546 and his death on the 28th of January 1547. Edward Seymour did, regularly, as did his allies. In that time, it was well known that Henry was on his deathbed. His demise would not have been a surprise. Now, it's unknown just how much Seymour and his allies were the puppet masters of Henry's final weeks and days, and without a good knowledge of what was in the various drafts of Henry's will over the last couple of years of his reign, it's impossible to know for certain just how much of a power grab they managed, and how much was down to their Machiavellian powers. But the fact is that when Henry died, Edward Seymour and his allies controlled the Council of Guardians, and Catherine Parr was nowhere near it. For the third time in her life, Catherine Parr was a widow, quite a feat for a woman of just 34. Henry's funeral was a magnificent affair, fitting for a monarch who had reigned for so long, and whose time on the throne had seen such dramatic change. His body was taken from Westminster to Windsor, where the roads were packed with onlookers. The parade included over 1,000 horsemen, with many other mourners joining it on foot. By the time it reached Windsor, it was over four miles long. Henry had expressed the wish to be buried next to his third wife, Jane Seymour, in St George's Chapel at Windsor. Vast amounts of black cloth had been ordered, which was made into mourning clothes for the king and queen's households. Mary and Elizabeth were dressed in black velvet, while Catherine herself was dressed in blue. Tradition dictated that queens did not officially attend their husbands' funerals, and so Catherine watched on from her private chapel. She probably disapproved of the ceremony itself, as it was carried out by her enemy Bishop Gardiner, and in Latin. We don't know when it was that she discovered that she was largely written out of Henry's will, at least when it came to the Regency, but she would have been aware of it fairly quickly. She wasn't totally forgotten. She was given a decent amount to live on, and would maintain her position as Dowager Queen, meaning that she would theoretically lose no status as a widow. She was also able to keep all of her dower properties, which were considerable, meaning that she was in no danger of falling on the doll heap. However, in the words of her biographer Linda Porter, quote, She could still exercise patronage, continue her writing, live a life of privilege and comfort. In the government of the realm, and in the upbringing of her stepson, she would, however, play no further part. Power would not be hers. It had passed elsewhere. As I've already said, power passed mostly into the hands of Edward Seymour, who, despite Henry's will making no mention of any member of the Council of Guardians becoming too powerful, managed to get himself the title of Lord Protector, and a promotion up the noble hierarchy to become Duke of Somerset. Given the potential for confusion with his younger brother, who will be joining our story momentarily, I will now simply refer to him as Somerset. Catherine could find no way into his circle. What made it particularly galling is that the wives of the men who now controlled the kingdom, including Somerset's, had been her own ladies-in-waiting. In practice now, they outranked her. She had been totally outflanked by the men who had once been her supporters, but now who saw a chance to take command of the kingdom, and they took it with both hands. Even her own brother slid himself into Somerset's camp. They had been close for a very long time, and when the situation was looked at dispassionately, this was his best bet. Indeed, this appeared to be the choice that pretty much every one of her supporters made. Transitions of power were often messy. You need to get on the right side as quickly as possible if you wanted to make it through. So, Catherine quickly found herself on the outside looking in. But that would not last too long, because an old friend was about to re-enter her life. 
a former flame and brother of the new Lord Protector, Thomas Seymour. Now, we haven't come across Seymour in a little while, so let's quickly refresh our memories. In the first part of this series on Catherine Parr, I quoted her modern biographer, Susan James, who described Seymour as, quote, ambitious, greedy, thoughtless, sexually aggressive, charismatic, and wildly popular with women. When we last saw him, he had been packed off to the continent by Henry so that he could clear the field of any rivals to Catherine's affections. Seymour had been with Henry all through his time in the invasion of France in 1544 and was therefore part of the army that had taken Boulogne. When the king had returned to England, Seymour moved to the navy, being made master of ordnance and an admiral. Aboard his wonderfully named ship, the Peter Pomegranate, he made himself a scourge of the French fleet, which earned him a fancy new residence at Hampton Place near Temple Bar in London as a reward. He returned to the court in late 1546, only a few weeks before Henry's death, to find his older brother making the machinations that would eventually make him Lord Protector. Thomas Seymour was, in many ways, the classic second son, always in the shadow of his elder brother, who, by virtue of his prior birth, inherited all the money and status. He was named as an assistant counsellor on the new King Edward VI council in Henry's will, but his brother upgraded him to that of a privy counsellor. He was also given a noble title, being made Baron Sudley, as well as Lord High Admiral of England and a Knight of the Garter. Despite this, Seymour wasn't completely satisfied. Speaking as an elder brother myself, the younger love-stealers that are born after you are never happy until they've squeezed every last morsel of advantage out of you, and this seems to have been the case with Seymour. He had position and influence, but not enormously so. He was wealthy, but not mega-rich. He was the king's uncle, but Edward's other uncle held all the chips. So, we have two former lovebirds, both in positions of power and influence, but nowhere near what they believed should have been theirs by right. They were both free, and they were both single, and they still had the hots for each other. It's really the least surprising thing in the world that they rekindled their affair not long after Henry VIII was buried. Let's also not forget that none of Catherine's previous marriages have really been her choice. They'd all been, to some extent, foisted upon her. This was a chance to marry for love, an opportunity that very few women of her status and time got. At first, the two engaged in their relationship in secret. As we've seen so far, the new regime was extremely unkeen for anything to emerge that could threaten their own position. They had been ruthless already in taking out their rivals, and they would not hesitate to do so again. The couple would have to tread very carefully. At first, they only exchanged letters, as per Catherine's request, but it seems that this quickly morphed into them spending a lot more time together at Catherine's residence at Chelsea. There too, there were rules. Catherine warned him in the letter, quote, When it shall be your pleasure to repair hither, ye shall take some pain to come early in the morning, that ye shall be gone again, by seven o'clock. I pray you let me have knowledge overnight at what hour you will come, that your portress may wait at the gates of the fields for you. They were sneaking around like teenage lovers avoiding mum and dad. It must have been quite exhilarating for a queen who had been longing for this man for half a decade. But in a household as big as Catherine's, with so many servants around, nothing like this could stay a secret for long. Knowledge of the affair first spread to the family of her sister, who was now married to William Herbert, the Earl of Pembroke. Catherine had been using her sister essentially as a third party for the passage of messages between herself and Seymour. Anne was really nothing more than a glorified postbox, and while she did not know for certain what the contents of these letters were, 
She was no fool and guessed. Anne probed Seymour at a dinner party, who wrote in a letter to Catherine that Anne, quote, waited further with me, touching my being with your highness at Chelsea, which I denied lodging with your highness, but that indeed I went by the garden as I went to the Bishop of London's house. And at this point, I stood with her for a time, till at last she told me further tokens that made me change colour, and she, like a false wench, took me with the manor. While they recognised the need to keep their relationship on the down low for the time being, it was clear that they wanted to get married, and it was not long before they did tie the knot. We don't know the precise date, but it was some time in late 1547, four months after the death of her third husband. We also have no idea of the nature of the ceremony, who performed it, where it took place, or who was there. This is because it was carried out in secret. Their plan was to marry now, get consent later. In one of his letters, Seymour frets about how he will get the consent of his brother Somerset to agree to the union. Catherine, who let's not forget her pretty good political instincts, gave the following advice. Quote, The denial of your request shall make his folly more manifest to the world, which will more grieve me than the want of his speaking. I would not wish you to importune for his goodwill if it come not frankly at first. It shall be sufficient once to require it and then to cease. I would desire you might obtain the king's letters in your favour, and also the aid and furtherance of the most notable of the council, such as ye shall think convenient, which thing being obtained shall be no small shame to your brother and sister, in case they do not the like. She had a pretty good relationship with the king, as the letters that he wrote to her while still Prince of Wales attest, and we clearly can see that her plan was to win his support, and that of the key members of the Council of Guardians, which would force the hand of Somerset. But when they began to leak the possibility of a marriage between Seymour and the Dowager Queen, far from gaining allies, they began to hemorrhage them. Yes, they had the support of the Herberts, but that was pretty much a given. What they could not afford to do was lose the support of members of the royal family. They each took a royal in turn. Seymour took Princess Mary, while Catherine wrote to King Edward. Things got off to an awful start when Mary, the current heir to the throne, let's not forget, made it clear that she disapproved heartily of the Union. But more specifically, she resented being used as a pawn in their game to win over the court. She wrote the following to Thomas Seymour after receiving a letter asking for her support. Quote, I have received your letter, wherein, as me thinketh, I perceive strange news concerning a suit you have in hand to the Queen for marriage, for the sooner obtaining whereof you seem to think that my letters might do you pleasure. My lord, in this case, I trust your wisdom doth consider that if it were for my nearest kinsman and dearest friend on life, of all other creatures in the world, it standeth the least with my poor honour to be a meddler in this matter, considering whose wife her grace was of late. And besides that, if she be minded to grant your suit, my letters shall do you but small pleasure. On the other side, if the remembrance of the king's majesty, my father, whose soul God pardon, will not suffer her to grant your suit, I am nothing able to persuade her to forget the loss of him, who is, as yet, very ripe in mine own remembrance. Wherefore, I shall most earnestly require you, the premises considered, to think none unkindness in me, though I refuse to be a meddler anyways in this matter, assuring you that, wooing matters set apart, wherein being a maid am nothing cunning, if otherwise it shall lie in my little power to do you pleasure, I shall be as glad to do it as you to require it, both for his blood's sake that you be of, 
and also for the gentleness. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Which I have always found in you. In this letter, Princess Mary, while being fairly polite, expresses in no uncertain terms that she had been aware for some time of the budding romance between the two, and that she wanted no part of any of it. This was quite a blow, and it was a terrible sign. Mary and Catherine had been allies for a long time. Their mothers had been best friends, and one could argue that Mary owed her position as heir to Catherine, to an extent at the very least. Catherine had more luck in her efforts to butter up the king. We aren't sure exactly what it is that she put in her letter, but we do have his reply, which is full of kind words. He really did hold huge affection for his stepmother. He tells her that, quote, I do love and admire you with my whole heart, wherefore if there be anything wherein I may do you a kindness, either in deed or work, I shall do it willingly. It seems that in the letter Catherine did not mention anything about her relationship with his uncle, it was mostly platitudes about Edward's father. What he did not know was that he was being manipulated by the mother figure that he so adored. Catherine was willing to use every bit of goodwill that she had built up over the years to get the boy king to agree to the match. And right now, she was worming her way into the very warmest place in his heart, so that when she did finally broach the matter of marriage with Seymour, he would agree without hesitation. As for the other counsellors, well, of course, there was a healthy amount of bribe money floating about and one of the recipients of this was one of Edward's privy councillors, John Fowler, who they shoveled money to in exchange for broaching the subject of a potential match for his uncle Thomas Seymour. They had hoped that, what with it being known the two were friendly, and that Edward loved them both so much, he would suggest his stepmother as the ideal choice. But no. Awkwardly enough, he suggested a different stepmother, Anne of Cleves. After a bit of thought, though, he discarded that notion, instead choosing an even more outlandish match than the one being proposed, a marriage between Thomas Seymour and the king's sister Mary. Clearly subtlety, even incredibly nudgy-nudgy-winky-winky subtlety as this undoubtedly was, was getting them nowhere. It was quite clearly lost on the boy king. Finally, Seymour asked Fowler to outright propose that he marry the queen. 
Once it was spelled out for Edward, he gave his consent gladly. As I said, he loved both Catherine and Thomas Seymour, and of course he didn't really have political skin in this fight, and was probably too young to have appreciated it anyway. In a letter to Catherine giving his consent to the match, Edward wrote, quote, We thank you heartily, not only for your gentle acceptance of our suit moved unto you, but also for your loving accomplishing of the same, wherein you have declared not only a desire to gratify us, but also moved us to declare the goodwill likewise that we bear to you in all your respects. So here we see that Edward has bought into the deception peddled by Catherine and Seymour, that this was all at his behest, and not something that they had been pushing for all along. He's expressing gratitude here for them doing something that they had always wanted. He continues, quote, Wherefore, ye shall not need to fear any grief to come, or to suspect lack of aid in need, seeing that he, being mine uncle, is of so good a nature that he will not be troublesome by any means unto you, and I, of that mind of that of diverse just causes, I must favour you, and I will so provide for you both that hereafter, if any grief befall, I shall be a sufficient succour in your godly or praiseable enterprises. Fare ye well with much increase of honour and virtue in Christ. So here, Edward explicitly mentions his uncle, the Duke of Somerset, saying that he is sure he will go along with the match, and even if something does crop up, Edward himself will be sure that they were favoured. Catherine here has managed, along with her powerful and charismatic new husband, to dupe and manipulate her beloved stepson into being a mere pawn in her game. She had used his admiration for her to her advantage. Now, a lot of historians have used this as a cane with which to beat her. How dare she act in this way, to play the little game using all the dark arts available to her? Yet while this was definitely not, you know, A-plus behaviour, it was no different to what any man would have done. It seems to be the fact that Catherine had been such a maternal figure to Edward that has offended so many writers, that a mother would treat a son in such a way. But if she treated him like a pawn, then it was because he was, to at least an extent. Her actions here did not damage Edward, they barely affected him. She deprived him of nothing, but managed to get the thing that she so ardently desired. Gaining the king's favour meant that the marriage to Thomas Seymour would be sanctioned. It would not turn out to be a crime. But, to paraphrase Talleyrand, it would turn out to be worse than a crime. It was a mistake. A marriage between Catherine and Thomas Seymour wasn't necessarily highly objectionable, but it was something that had to be handled carefully. She was the widow of the former king. It was expected that she would wait a decent time before remarrying. For months isn't really all that decent an interval. The optics weren't great. And this is before we even consider the fact that it was two very prominent people marrying in a period of transition. To say the least, it was all very badly handled. In the end, though he did not appreciate having this marriage foisted upon him in the way that it was, Somerset did not kick up a fuss. He didn't like the idea of the Dowager Queen marrying, but if it had to be so, then at least it was to his brother. The accomplished politician that he was, Somerset smelled in this an opportunity. Now that she was family, she could be much more easily controlled. He very much saw the Queen Dowager as someone to be exploited, and Catherine found that infuriating. But even more so, she hated his wife. Now this had not always been so. She and Lady Somerset had known each other for a very long time. She had been one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, and they shared a common interest in religious reform and the love of learning. Really, they should have been allies, but as so many women have found before at court, there was barely enough room for one woman at the top. There certainly wasn't enough space for two. 
Their rivalry was well known, and her letters are dripping with contempt for her. In one such occasion, she complains that Somerset keeps off putting meeting with her. Quote, I think my lady hath taught him that lesson, for it is her custom to promise many comings to her friends and perform none. She also wasn't above just calling her names. Quote, what cause have they to fear having such a wife? It is requisite for them to continually pray for a short dispatch of that hell. If that doesn't sound all that bad, then know that, at the time, hell was used as a slang for female genitalia. Lady Somerset, though, gave as good as she got. Quote, Did not Henry VIII marry Catherine Parr in his doting years, when he had brought himself so low by his lust and cruelty that no lady stood on her honour would venture on him? But it was in the court of popular opinion that Catherine had seriously miscalculated in her quick marriage to Thomas Seymour. What if she got pregnant? How could they know that the child wasn't Henry's? They thought it insensitive and inopportune, and that she had been driven not by duty or love, but by base sexual desire. Where before few had had a bad word to say about her, at least in reformer circles, now she was seen as an oversexed hussy. And all of these people were surrounding the young king, who was growing up fast, and it was not long before he realised that his beloved stepmother had deceived him and played him like a violin, and he did not appreciate that at all. Princess Mary, who had not been in favour of the marriage when it was presented as a proposal, was positively fuming that it had taken place in such a backdoor fashion. She wrote sardonically about the marriage, quote, It appeared to me to be quite fitting, since the Queen and her were of similar rank, she having been content to forget the honour she had enjoyed from the late king. Catherine and Seymour began to find themselves becoming less welcome at court. If the goal of their marriage had been to grow a power base to challenge Somerset, then they had woefully failed. But they did have one ace left in the hole, the Princess Elizabeth. Now at the time, of course, no one knew that this girl would one day grow up to be one of England's most famous monarchs. Indeed, no one expected her to ever become queen at all. She had two siblings ahead of her, and both would have to die childless for her to inherit the throne. And that seemed terribly unlikely. Thomas Seymour then added to his hand by purchasing the wardship of one Lady Jane Grey. She was the daughter of the Marquis of Dorset, who had essentially sold his parental rights to his daughter in exchange for a bucket load of cash and the promise of using his influence to arrange a good marriage for her. Perhaps even one, the king himself. When one adds the fact that he was married to the Dowager Queen, Seymour's position suddenly looked rather good. He may be unpopular, and his wife even less so, but power and money talks. To take a brief pause from all the politicking, it was around this time that Catherine finally published her great work, Lamentation of a Sinner, that I talked about at great length last time. Times had changed. Power was now in the hands of a new, younger generation of radical reformers who were looking to take the next step in the English Reformation. The brakes that Henry had placed on the pace of reform had been removed. It was time for England to turn Protestant, and Catherine was plugged into the ideological heart of this revolution. It was noted that hers was one of the very few noble houses in England to stop celebrating Mass, along with that of the Duke of Somerset and Earl of Warwick. She also patronised leading reformist thinkers and scholars, many of whom would go on to lead long political careers in the regime of Queen Elizabeth. Unlike his wife and brother, Thomas Seymour was not really all that interested in religion, and so all this activity can very squarely be attributed to Catherine. She really was a revolutionary in her own right. 
One of the most important things to do in any revolution is to make sure that it sticks. And the best way to do that is to ensure that the next generation are thoroughly impregnated with this new ideology. Catherine had done this already with her first stepdaughter and had had an influence on her other stepchildren to a point. But now she had two girls in her household whom it was her job to educate. These were two young women who would likely end up marrying to hugely influential people and had considerable power in her own right. Bringing them up properly, i.e. well-educated and Protestant, was her important responsibility. Jane Grey was ten years old when she entered Catherine's household at Seymour Place, four years younger than Elizabeth. The two do not appear to have been especially close, they probably didn't even share lessons, but they were being groomed by Catherine and Seymour to be their ticket to power. Elizabeth had already received a first-class education, but Catherine had big plans for its improvement. The two butted heads on who should be her new tutor. Catherine wanted one of her old friends to get the job, but the princess wanted the great scholar Robert Ascombe. In the end, the princess got her own way, an early indication of just how extraordinary this girl was. Bringing Elizabeth into the household, of course, meant bringing her into proximity with her husband, and, well, let's just say that Thomas Seymour was very interested in the beautiful early teenage princess, and Elizabeth was at an age when the attentions of a handsome, charismatic older man interested her very much. It's fair to say that Thomas Seymour was a pretty crappy husband when all things are considered. He was quick to anger and could be violent. He was very jealous and hated the fact that Catherine, as the Dowager Queen, had a higher status than him. He wasn't a fan of her meeting other men for any reason at all, and this caused quite public tension. Catherine, for her part, was no shrinking violet. She wasn't about to become some docile, placid wife just because she had an insecure loudmouth for her husband. She also looked on with growing concern at how he was treating her stepdaughter. Now, the relationship between Seymour and Elizabeth has been examined for centuries. There are lurid tales of threesomes and unwanted pregnancies, which are almost certainly fabrications, but there is no doubt that something was going on between the two, and eyebrows were being raised to the highest level. Elizabeth's governess, Cat Ashley, who was of course intimately familiar with everything going on in her charge's life, related that, quote, He would come many mornings into the said Lady Elizabeth's chamber before she was ready, and some time before she did rise, and if she were up, he would bid her good morrow, and ask her how she did, and strike her on the back or on the buttocks familiarly. And if she were in her bed, he would put open the curtains and bid her good morrow, and make as though he would come at her. And she would go further in the bed, so that he could not come at her. It seems that Catherine had decided the best thing for her to do would be to involve herself in this horseplay, so that she could make sure it didn't get out of hand. It's possible at first that she just saw it as harmless fun, She had known Elizabeth since she was nine, and maybe she hadn't noticed that she was growing into a beautiful young woman, old enough to marry by contemporary standards. Cat Ashley continues, At Hanworth, he would likewise come into the morning unto her grace, but as she remembereth, at all times he was up before, saving two mornings, the which two mornings the queen came with him, and this examinant lay with her grace, and there they tickled my lady Elizabeth in the bed, the Queen and my Lord Admiral. Another time at Hanworth, in the garden, he rated with her and cut her gown in a hundred places, being black cloth. And when she came up, this examiner chid with her, 
and her grace answered that she could not do withal, for the queen held her while the Lord Admiral cut it. At Seymour Place, when the queen lay there, he did use a while to come up every morning in his nightgown, bare-legged in his slippers, where he found commonly the Lady Elizabeth up at her book. And then he would look in at the galley door and bid my Lady Elizabeth good morrow, and so go his way. Then this examiner told my lord it was an unseemly sight to come so bare-legged to a maiden's chamber, with which he was angry, but he left it. Now, Cat Ashley isn't the most reliable of witnesses, but there is definitely truth in what she is saying here. All this leads us to two conclusions. Thomas Seymour was openly and quite unabashedly grooming Elizabeth sexually, and Catherine was letting it happen. Ashley, for her part, claimed that she, quote, told my lord that these things were complained of, and that my lady was evil spoken of. The Lord Admiral swore, God's precious soul, he would tell my Lord Protector how it slandered him, and he would not leave it, for he meant no evil. There are other stories as well, all similar to this one, all pointing to the fact that Thomas Seymour was aiming at a sexual relationship with the Princess Elizabeth. As he was a married man, this would ruin her, but he didn't seem to care. He was a Lothario, a man who used women for his own ends. While the fact that she was a princess undoubtedly played into this, this doesn't make much sense as a power play. It seems that lust got the better of him. Catherine was a woman who was not afraid to stand up to her husbands, and now she didn't face the threat of death if she pissed this husband off too much. But she didn't. Perhaps she was so in love with him that she just let it go for fear of losing him. Perhaps it was part of some long-term strategy, who knows, but she was partly responsible for what happened here, and it almost ruined the reputation of her charge that she had professed her love for many years. It also did nothing for her reputation or that of her husband, whose lust for Elizabeth would eventually lead to his downfall, but more on that later. Eventually, though, Catherine did take care of things in mid-1548. It was all getting too out of hand, and she finally recognised the danger. She sent Elizabeth away, outside the clutches of her lecherous husband, and not a moment too soon. This wasn't the only big thing happening in her life, though, as, almost miraculously, she was pregnant. It had been taken for granted that Catherine was infertile. She had now been married three times without any heir being born, and now in her mid-thirties, it was considered nigh on impossible for her to bear a child. But there was no doubt about it, she had a bun in the oven. She brought young Lady Jane Grey with her up to Sudley Castle in Gloucestershire, and there the two prepared for the birth. A nursery was fitted out, and building work was carried out to make it a fitting place for their child to be born, with all the increase in the side of the household that that would entail. Both budding parents were overwhelmed with excitement at the prospect of a child. Perhaps it would be a son, someone to inherit the family fortune, and who could carry on his father's name. In their letters, they referred to the unborn child as their little knave. On the day that coincidentally also is my birthday, the 30th of August, Catherine gave birth to a girl, Mary Seymour. She was healthy, and the birth appeared to have gone smoothly, far from a given thing, both given the time and Catherine's age. But, alas, Catherine caught a fever a few days later. It was puerperal fever, a nearly always fatal complication of childbirth at the time. It was an infection caused by a lack of knowledge of basic hygiene. Thoroughly preventable now, but not understood at the time. On the 5th of September, 1548, Catherine Parr, the former Queen of England, died, the fifth of Henry's wives to pass on, 
and the second to die in childbirth. She was buried soon after at the castle's chapel, after a Protestant service carried out in English, something she would have very much approved of. Her chief mourner was her ward, Lady Jane Grey, who of course had a big future ahead of her, not that she knew it at the time. Everyone was stunned at the death of the Dowager Queen, none more so than her husband Thomas Seymour. This was a serious setback for him, as his wife's prestige, while often resented by him, did add grandeur and status to his position. His reaction was to return to his lust for Princess Elizabeth, who he chased with unabashed passion. He was rebuffed at every turn by his brother in Parliament, but he would not quit. He would not accept that his position was diminished after Catherine's death, and that a marriage to Princess Elizabeth was out of the question. Rumours swirled that he planned a rebellion to overthrow his brother and place himself at the top of the pyramid as Lord Protector. Predictably, this led to his arrest and execution in 1549, just nine months or so after his wife's death. As for their daughter, she was placed into the care of one of Catherine's old friends, the Duchess of Suffolk, but it seems that she did not long outlive her parents, dying at the age of just two. Catherine Parr is in many ways a sea of contradictions. The reluctant queen, who arguably had more of an influence on the kingdom's present and future than any other wife of Henry VIII. The religious revolutionary, who nonetheless knew when to play the role of dutiful submissive wife, at least most of the time. The childless queen, who was a maternal figure for four future English monarchs. The loving wife, who had to wait until her fourth wedding to marry the man she truly loved. And still, she is largely best known for being a nurse... Frankly, it is outrageous that she is not better known and loved. In many ways, Catherine Parr exhibits some of the best qualities of many of Henry's previous wives. Like Catherine of Aragon, she was an experienced and trustworthy person who could handle the ship of state. Like Anne Boleyn, she was a strong-minded and intelligent religious reformer, though she went further than Anne ever did in her views. Unlike Jane Seymour, she did not produce an heir, but she carried on her legacy by being a strong maternal figure for her son, even if she didn't manipulate him in the end. Like Anne of Cleves, she managed to survive her husband. And like Catherine Howard? Well, she was nothing like Catherine Howard. That really is the point. She is not very well remembered today, but she did receive a fitting epitaph at the time of her death, read by her almoner, the famed Protestant reformer Miles Coverdale. In this tomb, the royal Catherine lies, flower of her sex, renowned, great and wise a wife by every nuptial virtue known, and faithful partner once of Henry's throne. To Somerset next her plighted hand she yields, Seymour, whose Neptune trident justly wields. From him a beauteous daughter blessed her arms, an infant copy of her parents' charms. Where now seven days this tender flower had bloomed, heaven in its wrath the mother's soul resumed. Great Catherine's merit in our grief appears, while fair Britannia dews her cheeks with tears. Our loyal breasts with rising sighs are torn, with saints she triumphs, we mortals mourn. What a beautiful end to an eventful eight months, yes, eight, covering the six wives of Henry VIII. Coming up next week, we have the long-awaited chat episode with Elizabeth Norton, the Tudor historian that has written more books on the wives of Henry VIII than possibly anyone else. In the interview, we discuss a load of things, including who we think was Henry's most successful wife, and, of course, most importantly, who our favourite was. 
I will of course also be revealing the big one, the most important question. Who has won the most important referendum of the decade? Forget Brexit. Who is the favourite wife of Henry VIII of the listeners of the Queens of England podcast? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.